Well, thank you for joining us again today. Uh, before we get started this, uh, let me start over. Thank you for joining us today. If, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find the book of Galatians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2 there in Galatians. But before we get into the message, I just want to address something before we get started. Uh, it's in regards to our world's current circumstances and the church, and not just our church, but the, kind of the churches throughout the world and especially throughout America. Uh, one of the unusual past several weeks that we've had. Um, extremely unusual, especially for Easter in the day in which we are celebrating today. One of my greatest fears during this time is that people will start to get comfortable with all the online content that's being pumped out by their churches, and whether it be music, or whether it be sermons, and people just get really comfortable with those things. And my fear is that people will start to believe that online music and online sermons are really how you can and how you should go about your Christian walk from here on. Uh, but sometimes when we have exceptional times, it turns to exceptional measures, which is where we are today in this exceptional moment. And usually from this, from these new times come kind of a new normal, and people start to lean towards more of the exception instead of the rule. And that's what is one of my biggest fears in all of this. Now, all of this moment that we have, uh, it should not feel normal. It should not feel right. And hopefully over the last several weeks, if you've been watching these online, uh, there has been a sense of this is just not, not right. Uh, because it's really not. It, this is an outlier. This is a unique time, a unique moment. In 1918 with the Spanish flu, uh, churches had to make a tough decision of closing their doors uh, for the protection of their people and of the society around them. Uh, and in 1918, there was around 50 million people that died as a result of that virus. So why shouldn't online church functions be normal from now on? Why should the online content not be sufficient for how we should go about our Christian walk? Well, it's because it's not what the scriptures have instructed us to do. And I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, because it gives us some insight into the, the essential part of Christianity, one of the essential parts of Christianity. And it says this in verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, right there in verse 25, there is a phrase that is there in English, meet together, and the Greek phrase that's used there is this Greek word that's uh, episynagoge. Now, this literally means a meeting together in one place, one place, a one-place gathering that's taking place. So there's a very heavy em emphasis put upon the gathering in one place in the New Testament. And here in Hebrews, we, we see that emphasis shown. So 
this is very interesting that this is said here in Hebrews because this is right at the start of really the heavy persecution of Christians. But there's still a call for people to not abandon the gathering, to, to still come to the gathering uh, in one place and under one name, and that is the name of Jesus. There should be a longing in the believer for the gathering of the saints, a longing to be with God's people, the body of Jesus Christ, to not have a desire to be part of the gathering, to be at this one place together with other believers. This is odd. This is strange. This is unique. This is not normal to not have a desire to do that. And so yeah, I think it's also telling of a, of a person's spiritual condition, whether they are maybe just misled, have been given some information that's just not true, or maybe they're just immature in their faith, or quite possibly they're not even a believer. They're not even a follower of Jesus Christ. A healthy desire for the gathering is what should be normal, what should be right, what should be present and there. And it shouldn't be seen as the exception. Now, with the current situation that we have, that is a very exceptional one for us, I want us to focus on something that is the most unique, the most distinct characteristic of Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know that's probably a shocker for you since it is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, but just because it is uh, a message about the resurrection of Jesus, please don't turn your ears off to what I have to share with you today. I do want to take you to the book of Galatians in just a moment. Now, some would claim that the resurrection uh, is nothing new to religion. It's nothing new to the world. And Christianity has just copied other religions and, and has created their religion based out of uh, just a, a copying technique of others. Now, this would be a fair argument to make if there were equal comparisons to be made from these other religions versus Christianity and what it has to say about Jesus' resurrection. But whenever they are compared, there's really no comparison at all. Uh, they have no real comparison to the biblical account of Jesus being resurrected. There, there's very distinct differences that are there. And this is uh, quite interesting whenever you do some research on that. Now, the resurrection, it, it's also not a new thing to Scripture before Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, there's three different people that were resurrected from the dead. And then in the New Testament, we see seven other times that resurrection happens. And that includes that one time being Jesus' resurrection. So what we have throughout Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, are evidences of resurrection being a possibility, being a, a real-life thing that's taking place in this world in which we live. But there's something distinct and unique about Jesus' resurrection. And the question is, what is that? What is unique about Jesus' resurrection? Well, his resurrection is the only one whose was not acted upon by someone else. We have nothing there to show us that, well, a prophet came and laid over the top of Jesus, like what happened earlier with the prophets in the Old Testament. There was nobody that took Jesus by the hand and raised him up like Jesus had done to others. 
There was no party standing outside the, the tomb of Jesus crying out that Jesus' name so he would come out of the grave like Jesus did with Lazarus. No, we don't have any of those things happening. All we have is Jesus rising from the grave. And it wasn't acted upon by some human, by someone else. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter simply says that God raised Jesus from the dead. But in a fuller view of Scripture, the Trinity was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. Let me give you three passages uh, real quick to help you see this truth. First of all, we're going to look at God the Father had his part in the resurrection of Jesus. There in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So God the Father was at work in raising Jesus from the grave. Then we have God the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 1 Peter 3, 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work in bringing Jesus back from the dead. But then the third person of the Trinity is God the Son. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now Jesus is referring to not just the, the temple that was there in Jerusalem, but he's referring to his body, that there would be a bodily resurrection of Jesus in three days. And if you read the rest of John's text there in John 2, you, you see that this is what Jesus is indicating and what he's explaining. So we have the Trinitarian God at work in raising Jesus from the grave. And what proves Jesus' deity is the fact that he predicted that this would happen. Let me take you back to John's Gospel. In chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, John writes this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is speaking here, and he's giving real clarity onto who has the authority in this situation of resurrection. And it proves that Jesus was no mere human. He was human, but he was no mere human like you or I. He had an authority over his life, and he had an authority over his death, which none of us have. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was in accordance with God's will, with the Father's will and the Father's timing of these events. So, now, something else that is so exceptional and so unique about the resurrection of Jesus is... Also, the impact that it has upon the believer, the impact that it has upon us as those that are, that are followers of him. So I want to take you to the second chapter of Galatians. In the last three verses that are here, verses 19 through 21. And hopefully you have your Bible open and you're there and follow along with me. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What an interesting passage of Scripture. What an amazing passage of Scripture that we have here. Paul, again, writing this letter to uh, the church at Galatia and helping them to understand the grace of God. And that's what Galatians is all about. It's about God's grace. And this is what we celebrate on Easter today is God's grace to us. Let me take you back to verse 19. It says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, what does this mean? What is Paul saying here? Well, it means that the law condemned Paul to death because he was in violation of it. He had violated the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the other laws that are there in the Old Testament. He had violated those at some point. And because of that violation, he is condemned by those laws, just as we are all condemned by our breaking of those laws. But Christ took Paul's place It became a substitute in his place. This is what Paul's saying here in verse 19. So Jesus went to the cross as an innocent man. He was innocent in the eyes of God, but he was also innocent with men as well, even though men condemned him. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, and maybe probably a lot of you have been reading that uh, in your personal devotion time throughout this week, reading about uh, this holy week and what's happened uh, through this week, and that Jesus suffered many things, and in the, the court cases that he went through, and how they were just kangaroo courts where uh, they would bring in false witnesses, they would make accusations that weren't true, they would twist what was true, but also they would just reject the truth of who Jesus was. Now this is tragic, it's awful, but it's exactly what was going to happen. And as we've been journeying through Mark's gospel, we have seen Mark make the point of who Jesus is. And there's an overwhelming amount of evidence showing that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And these courts, they rejected it, they denied it, they suppressed it, and then they executed Jesus on a cross. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he does not go there to pay for his crimes against God or against man. He he had done done nothing wrong in the eyes of God. He had done nothing wrong, really, against humanity. But he dies in place of sinners like Paul. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then look at verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When Jesus died on that cross, he became the curse for Paul, and he became the curse for you. The law has lost its condemning authority over Paul because he put his faith in Jesus' death for him. 
He put his faith in Christ on that cross. Jesus had suffered the condemnation of Paul's, uh, in Paul's place. Therefore, Paul sees himself as free from the law. Justice has been satisfied. And Paul is forever free from the penalty of his lawlessness ever again. Because when someone is given capital punishment for their crimes and they are executed, and that's what capital punishment is, then there, there's no further recourse for their crimes, is there? Death has freed them from any more consequences of their crimes because they have died. And so whenever Paul is identifying himself with Christ, he's saying, I'm free from my lawlessness. I'm free from my crimes. But it's not because of me. It's not my death that did it, but it is Christ in Christ alone. Billy Graham has been famously quoted as saying, I never saw a U-Haul behind a hearse. Now, you can go on the internet, you can search that quote, and then you can probably find pictures that go along with it of hearses that are pulling a U-Haul behind it. You can even find uh, a story of a funeral home using a U-Haul as a hearse. Um, But the point that Mr. Graham is making here and is what we all really know, and that is that you can't take it with you. All these possessions, all your money, all the things that you've ever worked for in your life, you cannot take it with you. And the same principle is true about our crimes against God in the death of Jesus. We cannot take them with us. They have been paid for in full. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is gone. Why? Because of the death of Jesus Christ. Because of what has happened in Him. I'm freed from the law. Now, Here's something else that we can learn from this verse, from verse 19, is that you cannot live for God if you're living for the law. And this principle plays out in other ways, such as you cannot live for God if you're living for other things, like maybe sports, or maybe it's for popularity, or maybe it's uh, approval from your parents or from your peers, or maybe it's for money, or maybe it's for power. And this list that we can make, it could keep going on and on. We keep adding all kinds of things to it of what people like to do and what they like to live for. And the idea is that if you're living for anything, including your ability to follow the law, then you're not, and you will not, be living for God. Even though you believe yourself to be a good person because of maybe your philanthropy, Or maybe it's because you're so good at crossing your T's and dotting your I's. These things will not and they cannot make you right before God. There is only one way for that to happen and that is through your death to sin through Jesus' death on the cross. That is the only way. That is the only way that you can be freed from the law. The believer is released from the bondage and the condemnation of the law. But they're not released from their obligation to follow the law. Now hopefully you understand that. They're freed from the condemnation of the law, but they're not freed from the obligation to keep the law. Now why is that? Because the law pleases God. It's God's word. It's God's law. It pleases Him that you follow that. 
And so you don't get to throw away or unhitch yourself from God's word, from God's law, just because you're now under grace. And Paul explains this in the book of Romans quite clearly. No, this law that he's given us, it helps to purge us of the sin that still remains in our flesh. And so the law is still good for us. The law has been totally accomplished in Jesus. When he died on the cross, he was totally in compliance with the law of God. And it was complete in his death. So our following of the law is not what makes us righteous because our obedience to it could not make up for our disobedience to it. And hopefully you understand what I mean by that. It's not that you get to heaven and there's this grand scale of the good things and the bad things that you've done and you get to pile on the the good side, all the good things you've done, and then God places all the bad things you've done on the other side and see which one weighs out. It doesn't work that way in a court of law. It doesn't work that way in God's court either. The judge does not ask you, well, how many good things did you do throughout your life? And then discount that against the bad thing that you did. That's not how it works and that's not how God works. And so it's Jesus' death that removes the condemnation that is on us, but there's still an obligation on our part as a believer to follow after what he has told us to do because it's the most honoring thing to him. This is why he's given the law to his people because it honors him and it shows others that we honor him. Now, there, there must be a death to the law in order for there to be eternal life. You get that? There must be a death to the law so that we can have eternal life. And this is what we have in Jesus. But how do we get eternal life out of Jesus' death? Well, we, we don't. We get eternal life out of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why the resurrection is so important for us. The condemnation has been removed, but we need something else in order to do what Paul says in the next verse, verse 20, where he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The only way for Christ to live in Paul is if Christ is alive. If Christ was not resurrected from the grave, then how could Paul say such words? How could he say this? He couldn't. And so Jesus is alive, and because he is alive, you can have eternal life as well. If the grave had remained closed and the burial clothes were still clinging to that body, we would have no hope of eternal life. And quite honestly, there would be a lot of doubt whether or not we were freed from the law if there was no resurrection. The believer has been united with Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus represents us in his death and in his resurrection. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul says this, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. What he has in view here is his own death on a cross with Christ. Paul, when he sees Jesus, when he thinks on Jesus on the cross, he believes himself to be right there along with him. And, and literally, from the original language, it means along with. And so Paul sees himself as being crucified along with Christ. 
He's imagined himself right there in the moment with Jesus. These are not separate events, but the same event. Wasn't that Jesus did something and then I need to do something? No, Paul looks at the cross and says, that was me. That was me right there. That's who died. But Jesus died in my place. So what Paul does here, it's the next logical step. And he points this out. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the next logical step. If, if he views himself as being right there in the same moment along with Jesus, the next logical step for him is to say, I now live because Jesus lives. I died because Jesus died, but now I live because Jesus lives. So if Paul was, there was Jesus at his crucifixion, at his crucifixion, that would mean that he is also there in Jesus' resurrection. And we could say the same thing for us as believers today. That I was there, I was there at the cross with Christ. He died in my place. And now that the tomb is empty and he is alive, I have life. Notice that Paul says that it is not him who lives, but Christ in him. It's not Paul. It wasn't what Paul did because it's not Paul's resurrection that brings about life in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, but it's Jesus' resurrection. It's not Paul's and it's not your resurrection that brings about life. It is only through Jesus. It's not through what Paul's done. It's not through what you have done. It's not through what I could do for you, if anything, but it's solely and only upon what Jesus has done. It's what he did alone on the cross. It's what he did in conquering the grave alone. Nobody else helped him. It was God. God alone did that. Paul, he lives in the flesh, but he lives by what now? He says, faith. I live by faith. He lives in the flesh, but it is Christ who lives in him. And this inward living of the Spirit of Christ, or we would say the Holy Spirit that's now in Him, and also in us as believers, it does not rob us as individuals of our individuality. It doesn't rob us of that. Paul is still very much Paul, but in what happened to Paul is that he's very different, because Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was Saul, as most of you know. And what happened when Saul was still Saul was he was a slave to the law. He was an expert in following it. He was an expert in everything that it had said, everything that it taught. And he followed it the best that he could. He thought he was right with God because of his execution of the law. And he paid such close attention to the details of it. He was given authority. He had reputation. But as he confesses, the law could only bring death, and it could not bring life. The Holy Spirit brings about new desires in a person and gives them new directions because there's a new life. And this is what Paul is sharing here. There's a newness in him because of what has been accomplished because of Jesus' death, but also his resurrection. Now, what should be our relationship with the unbelieving system of this world? What, what should be my relationship now with the flesh? 
as Paul is talking about this, uh, this should be a really good question for us to ask ourselves. Well, right there in the book of Galatians, go to chapter 5, look at verse 24. Paul gives us some help here of how we should think about our relationship to this system, this world that we're in, but also to our flesh. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Did you catch that? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, that doesn't mean that you are, are dead physically, but he's using the physical to point to something spiritual. And this is exactly what Jesus would do all the time in his teaching. And so to answer the question simply, it's yes, very different. Should it be the same or should it be different? No, it should be very different of how we act with this world, but also how we act with our own fleshly desires. As he says, that we've crucified those things. The the passions, the desires that we've had, they're gone. They should be gone from us because we are united with Jesus. And when we are united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, we must deny ourselves. And this is what we talked about last week in Mark chapter 8 with what Jesus calls to people that want to follow him. He says, you must deny yourself. And this is what Galatians 5.24 is telling us happens. It gets crucified. The self gets crucified. Your passions, your desires, your directions, your plans, your ambitions, those things must be nailed to the cross with Jesus. Let me share again from Romans chapter 8 in regards to this whole idea. In verses 9 through 11, again, the author is Paul, and Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The believer does not live their life according to the old, dead, sinful desires. You you should be different. You should be acting differently because there's a new life that's been put in you by the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is now dwelling in you as a believer. If you find yourself to have the same exact desires and nothing's really changed in your life, and you've been a Christian for a number of years, and nothing is changing, what is that saying about your spiritual condition? What does that mean? Well, I would ask you the question, do you... Do you really know Him? Have you really turned from your sin, rejected your sin, repented of your sin? Have you really embraced Christ? Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Are you really following Jesus? And I think this is what Paul is getting at here. All of this is possible only by way of the resurrection of Jesus How can we deny ourselves? How can we take up our cross? How can we follow Him? It's only if Jesus is alive. It's only if the resurrection happened. 
in the resurrection, it guarantees that we will have a new life spiritually today and a new physical life someday. This resurrection that happened with Jesus, it was not just a, a spirit that resurrected, but the body of Jesus was resurrected. As you know the story, when they looked in the tomb, it was empty. All that was there was the burial clothes. There was no body. It is a physical resurrection that happened with Jesus. It wasn't just spiritual. And so we can anticipate a spiritual and a physical resurrection. And this is what Jesus promises. And this is what what Paul is talking about. Now, if you look at the next verse that we have, I guess the same verse that we're there in in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 20. He says this, Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. These are some of the greatest words in the Bible to ponder on. He loved me and gave himself for me. Let me give you just a little bit of context to remember uh, Paul and, and the weight that these words would carry as he would say these things. As I said earlier, Paul wasn't always Paul, but he was Saul. And Saul was a zealous man who believed that all the followers of Jesus, they were a detriment to the society. And he was on a mission to eradicate them, to imprison them, to, to execute them. And he was very good at his job. And he had gained uh, quite a reputation for doing this. He believed he was in the right. He believed in all sincerity that he was doing the right thing, that he was following the law of God, that he was following God's instruction. He was very sincere and very zealous in his faith, but he was flat out wrong. And so I've said this before, but please hear this. Sincerity doesn't save you. Just because you're really sincere in your faith about X, Y, and Z, it doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's right. Sincerity doesn't save you. It's the truth that saves you. And the truth of Jesus dying on a cross and resurrecting from the grave and you putting your faith and trust in Him alone in those things. Now, this man, Saul, he was the epitome of of someone being against all things Jesus. He was... The, the picture of, uh, of a Pharisee. He thought he was right. But then there was a dramatic conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, as you know the story. And, and this man who had been so opposed to Jesus and hated all things Jesus now, through this miraculous conversion that takes place, he now loves Jesus. What a radical turnaround. What, a, what an amazing story. And when did this happen? This happened because Jesus loved him. And Jesus loved him while he was still a sinner and still a hater of God. Jesus loved him to the point of giving his life for Saul's sin and rebellion. Jesus did not die for some sins and not for others. He said, well, you know, Saul, I can, I can pay for these sins, but you know, those murder charges you got, I can't handle those. No, Jesus' death on the cross, it paid for all of his sin. The, the little ones, or the ones that we perceive to be little ones, and then the massive ones. 
Jesus paid for all of them. There were and are no sins that are too costly for the blood of Jesus. There's none that Jesus' blood could not pay for. This is really good news for Saul, and it's really good news for us. When Paul says that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him, he remembers what he was. He remembers how great of a love Jesus had for him. He remembers what great cost there was in order to save him. Christian, do you remember who you were? Do you remember what you were? Does your wretchedness, your sinfulness, does it still stink in your nose? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that Jesus loves you? Have you forgotten the cost that was there to save you? I would ask that you would remember these words as what Paul has said, who loved me and gave himself for me. What great words we could just ponder on today and think on today as we think of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're an unbeliever and you have not repented of your sin, you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, in His death and in His resurrection, then please listen to these words. He loves you. And He gave Himself for you. It is only in Him that your sins can be wiped away. It is only in Him that you can actually live. He is the only way to life. There is no other way. And He is the way to life because He lives. He's not in the grave. You must put your faith in Him in order for you to be free from the law's condemnation and for you to have eternal life. He is the only way for those two things to happen. How are you free to stand righteously before God? It's in the death of Jesus. How can you enjoy eternal life? It's only through the resurrection of Jesus. Let me take you to the last verse of our text that we have where Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law that Christ died for, no purpose. How would God's grace be nullified or voided? How would that happen? How could that happen? Well, it's really by any attempt to lay claim to or credit for any part of your salvation. That you're saying, well, yeah, I had something to do with that. Or that you're, you're laying claim to that, saying, well, look how good I did. The word grace, it means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. So if you believe that you were good enough, you worked hard enough, you were religious enough, you uh, were a member of the right church or a member of the right family, or you were a child of such godly parents or a grandchild of godly grandparents, or really any other thing, then you have nullified the grace of God. You avoided the grace of God because you made grace no longer grace. You've made it upon your merit and not upon His kindness and His goodness to you, His love to you. This is what Paul is meaning when he says that if righteousness were through the law, 
then Jesus died for no reason. Because if you could lay hold of salvation or righteousness based upon your working, then Jesus died for no reason. If righteousness is found in any other place, then there is no need for Jesus' sacrificial death. There's no need at all for it. And he has died in vain or died needlessly. What this would mean is that Jesus, he would have been foolish for dying if there was some other way for people to be made right with God. Jesus would have been a fool to die if there was some other way. And honestly, what this would mean, because Jesus is God in the flesh, is that God is foolish. And this just cannot be. But if you remember the story of Jesus in the garden, when he's praying, what does he ask? That the cup would pass from him, but he says, not my will, but yours be done. And the response from the Father is, there's no other way. There is no other way for wretched sinners to be made right with God other than the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the grave. The death of Jesus proves that there is no other way possible for a person to be found righteous before God. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that there is no other way to eternal life except through Jesus Christ. I want to end today by taking you to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Verses 5 through 14. And quite honestly, Romans 6 is probably a a deeper explanation of what's being said there in Galatians. And so let me show you these verses. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What great news we have today to think of not just the death of what Jesus did on the cross, but but the accomplishment of the resurrection. That now I, I have a life to live that is a new direction, a life that actually is full of life because of Jesus. And I have been promised eternal life because of his resurrection. 
I hope these words are encouraging to you today, Christian. And for those that might be watching this that are not believers, my challenge to you is trust Him. Trust Him. Look to the grave. There's nothing. He is not there. He is risen, and He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank You for all that You have done, all that You have accomplished that from all of eternity and all throughout biblical history and and written history and all of humanity, we have been working toward this point of Jesus' death, but also to His resurrection. And God, all of the future was built upon this moment. God, I pray that Your Word, as it has went out today, it would sink into the hearts, into the minds of Your people, God, I pray also that it would convict, it would intrigue, it would stir in the unbeliever. God, I pray that there would be people come to know who you are today. That even though we have this such, such a unique and exceptional time, God, let us not believe that you are unable to work and move in these times. God, let us not think that you are shackled or you have sheltered in place in this time. But God, your word is still moving, it's still active, it's still changing people. And so we've got to pray for the Christian that has been discouraged, that has been, been feeling condemned by their sin God, I would ask that you would help them turn their eyes to the cross. You'd help them see that their sin has been been paid for. And God, give us an understanding of what Paul understands, that we now live a life that is in Christ. It's Him that's in us. Our faith, our faith is driven because of the resurrection. Lord, again, I thank you for who you are and that you have loved us, and you gave your Son for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.